Hello, and welcome to the Summit Church Podcast. Our messages are designed to help teach and equip you on your journey to lead people to follow Christ. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage you, no matter where you are on your journey towards Christ. If you have questions, want to talk, or want to learn more about Summit, visit us at summitmiles.com. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. My name is Chuck. Um, I was recently fired as the staff meteorologist here at Summit Church. <laughs> Somehow I retained my associate pastor status through all of that, so that's good. Uh, we are looking forward to uh, our service tonight uh, together out um, in the park and the, the following picnic. I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are, hope you are too. Um, I'm, I am privileged. I am humbled. I don't say that lightly. I am privileged and humbled to be with you this morning, to be able to share God's word with you. Do you know that I need this just as much as you do? I need to be encouraged um, with you here. I need to, to offer encouragement to one another. I, uh, I need to engage in something bigger than myself by participating in, in worship and in prayer. Um, and I also need to be instructed by God's word. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I say that. I'm privileged and I'm humbled to be sharing God's word uh, with you today. Uh, today we're, we're beginning a new series called Distinctive People. Distinctive People. We're looking at six biblical values that shape Christ-centered community. So these are values that we find in Scripture. Uh, more than that, they demand our attention from Scripture. So over the next four weeks, we are going to be spending time doing that. We're immersing ourselves in God's Word. We're studying, and I hope that along uh, with me, you would be asking God by the power of His Spirit that these values that we talk about and we think through and process, that, that God would, by His Spirit, take these values and, and form themselves into our hearts, crowding out our selfish and worldly desires so that individually and then corporately, we would become more like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's, that's our, our desire over the next uh, four weeks. So these values, um, they've helped define the very vision of this church, this local representation of the body of Christ. The, our desire is that these values permeate the culture of our church here. We want to be a people who experience ownership of the gospel. We want to be able to be a people who receive and extend God's grace. We desire to be a people who grow in their faith and their intimacy with God, who build authentic community through groups we want to be a people who use their gifts and their generosity to further God's kingdom. That's who we desire to be. Gospel, grace, growth, groups, gifts, and generosity. Now, these values, if you look at them, they directly influence. If we hold to these values, they directly influence how we relate to the Lord. They, they relate to how, or they, they influence how we relate to one another and to the world. They shape our community. I also want to say that while, while there is always good work to do here, Obedience in these values is paramount to living out our faith. We need to know that. But I also want to be clear that these values are not simply an extended to-do list. These are things that we need to receive and to own. So these are gifts from the Lord. You recognize that. These are gifts from the Lord. Remember, we serve a gracious God who supplies the righteousness that He demands. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But these are gifts by God's grace, that we're going to experience and to know and to be and to hope. So my, my prayer for you today, my sincere hope, my prayer is that God begins to move these things, these values, more uh, from, from religious concepts and ideas in our head to truth that we know in our hearts. That's my prayer. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to start today in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I hope that you brought your Bibles either uh, through the app on your phone or through your physical Word of God here. 1 Corinthians 15, that's in the second half of your Bibles. Um, we're also going to be in 2 Thessalonians a little bit later today. Uh, but we'll read through 1 Corinthians 15 in just a moment. But this morning, um, we're starting with the Gospel. The Gospel. Distinctive people experience ownership of the Gospel. And I'll be honest with you, I struggled this week uh, to write this sermon. I struggled this week. 
uh, I found myself so desperately wanting to communicate correctly the essence of the gospel, how much that it means to me. And on top of that, that I would do it in such a way that, would, that you would be struck with awe as you marveled at the goodness of God. I, I, that I, I didn't know where to start. A preacher who loves the gospel, and he didn't know how to write a message on the gospel. I didn't know where to start. I was overwhelmed. I couldn't decide what passage to begin with. I got stuck multiple times. How do you begin, and in such a short time, do justice to the most essential truth that will ever fall on your ears? The good news of the gospel. And then how, in turn, will that direct the following five values that we have to set us up well? I was overwhelmed this week. Started and stopped many times. And it was then that God directed my thoughts uh, to, my, to a notebook that I hadn't opened in a while. And in this notebook, I had some notes from a ministry conference that I attended a few months ago. This is Basics Conference. It's a ministry conference that reminds and it equips pastors to do the basics of their calling well, to preach the Word and to shepherd their flock. And I remembered in one of our sessions, Alistair Begg was teaching from 1 Corinthians 15, and he's looking out over a room full of men, eager to bring the gospel to their people. And he pastorally and lovingly cautioned us, saying, don't be preoccupied with the packaging of the gospel, just the gospel. Hmm, that's right. I needed that on Wednesday. I needed that reminder on Wednesday. I needed that reminder on Thursday and on Friday and on Saturday. And I need that reminder today. That's how I want to start today being preoccupied with the gospel. So Alistair reminded us in that session that the Corinthian people who Paul was writing to, that culture, they were fascinated with, with rhetoric and philosophy and speculation. They, their culture loved to be charmed with speculation. But Paul in his letter, as he's addressing them, does the opposite of this when talking about the gospel. He simply lays it out as basic truth. I want you to follow along with me now as I read from 1 Corinthians 15. Hopefully you've found that now. The first four verses, starting chapter 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's it, plain as day. The Gospel. In all simplicity, Paul does this. Why? It's almost as if he knew something that, that the rest of us didn't know. Paul knew that the Gospel in and of itself has power. God uses the spoken gospel to transform. God's word will not return void, he says, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That's Romans 1.16. So where we start this morning is a simple explanation of the gospel. What is the gospel? Can we be preoccupied with just the gospel? Here's the gospel. The gospel is the proclamation. It is an announcement the proclamation that the finished work of Christ on the cross has covered your sin, satisfying the wrath of a holy God, and has procured new life everlasting for all those who believe in the name of Jesus. That is the gospel. It is an announcement. It is a proclamation. It is truth spoken to you, spoken over you. The finished work of Christ on the cross has covered your sin, satisfying the due wrath of a holy God, and has procured new life everlasting for all those who believe in the name of Jesus. It is of what Paul says is of first importance. Do you have a pen or pencil this morning? Are you willing to write in your Bibles or, or highlight something on your app? Here's what I want you to do. If you have that, I want you to box in the phrase at the beginning of verse 2, by this gospel you are saved. Can you, can, you, can you put a box around that? By this gospel you are saved. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to box in somehow Everything after the word importance, which is what we're talking about. That is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. So box in by this gospel you are saved, and then box in everything after the word importance. Now, 
draw a line, an arrow, make some type of connection where you can connect those two things. Do whatever you want to connect those two things. And then lastly, here's the last thing I want you to do. I want you to star or I want you to circle the phrase of first importance. Have you done that? Okay. Now, look at your markings. Look back at that picture. Don't look at me. Look at the picture. Look at the word. Get, the, get this picture all together now. This gospel that saves is of first importance. Okay? So he's writing this to believers, you might remember. Those who have believed this already. This is significant for us now. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in his letter to the Corinthian church, has been instructing them on all the good things that they ought to do and ought not to do. He's taught them what Christian leadership looks like. He's addressed sexual immorality. He's talked about lawsuits among believers. He's answered their questions about marriage and food and drink. For 14 chapters, he has been teaching them all that God commands, instructing them on holy living. And out of all the things that he could have elevated to the top, he says, of first importance is this, that you are to hold firmly to that which you first profess to believe, Jesus died for your sins. Today, I think it is vitally important that we do exactly as Paul implores us to do. To stand firm and to hold fast to the gospel teachings of Scripture. Listen, we're in a day and age where the gospel is being watered down. Progressive Christianity is attempting to rewrite the scandal of God's grace in an effort to make it more palatable. But another gospel is no gospel at all, church. So it is imperative for us to know the truth of, about God the Father, Jesus Christ, the rightful meaning of the cross, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as it shapes and defines us. It is then and only then that we do that, that we can take true ownership of the gospel, keeping it in front of us. We can begin to own it, our belief in the gospel, holding firmly to it as it daily becomes the very strength and encouragement we need to do all that God has called us to do. So that's what we're going to do today. I want to walk through the basic tenets of the gospel that are reflected in the narrative of Scripture, evidenced in the teachings of the apostles and authenticated by Christ himself. That's what we want to look at today, how they impact, shape, and define us. And I want to close with how we can hold firmly to these truths. Now, I want to ask you this morning not to check out as we start talking about the gospel. Not that you would do that. But just because the gospel is familiar to you, I would ask that you would, with new ears, pay attention to the goodness and the truth and the details of the gospel, even though it's familiar to you already. All of you, here's why, all of you could probably recognize a penny, right? You know what a penny looks like, but can you tell me which direction Abe is facing? What word is printed off the back of his shoulder? What building is on the opposite side? What two words sit just below it? In the same way that you might forget some details of a penny that is so familiar to you, it is good to listen to the old story of our redemption with fresh ears this morning. So let's start at the very beginning. Gospel truth number one, God is holy and man is sinful. God is holy and man is sinful. It doesn't take much digging through Scripture to hear the proclamation that God is holy. It is exclaimed in prophecy. It is uttered in prayers. And it is revealed through his call to our obedience. To be holy, that word holy, means to be cut off from everything else. To be set apart, cut from a different cloth. Unlike and distinct from everything else that exists around it. God is holy, meaning he is set apart in his perfection. Even the word perfection is lacking when it comes to describing God. He is without blemish. He is untouched by wrongness, without flaw. We have nothing to compare him to because his very nature of holiness is outside of our realm of comprehension. God is holy. We have no proper context with which to properly process our thinking and understand of his greatness, for he is infinite. He is God. Psalm 99, 1 through 5, the Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The King is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob you have done what is just and what is right. 
exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. He is holy. Isaiah 40, 25 and 26. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of His great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Who is this God? How great is His glory. In Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, the angels proclaim that the whole earth is full of His glory. God's glory fills the whole earth. And the angels shout, holy, 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 three times, because once isn't enough. In that very vision that unfolds for Isaiah, he gets a front row seat to the Lord sitting on the throne, to the holiness of God, and he discovers that God is foundationally unlike us. As Isaiah witnesses God's utter holiness, his only and his appropriate cry is, Woe is me! Woe is me! I am undone! Peter, when he was faced with a glimpse of God's holiness on display through that miraculous catch of fish, he fell at Jesus' knees. I am a sinful man. Away from me. Your presence, O Lord. Right here is the crux of this first truth, that God's holiness, His righteousness, and His perfection reveals just how sinful we are in comparison to Him. The prophet Jeremiah reveals this. The heart is deceitful above all things, and beyond cure, who can understand it? Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. See, you and I as mankind, we carry a fallen nature. We are broken vessels. We are made in the image of God, yes, but because of sin, we are now marred beyond recognition. And the implications of that, our sin, lead us into our second truth. God is holy and man is sinful, but now because of that sin, we are separated from God and it leads to death. Isaiah 59, 1-3, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is His ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. Your hands are stained with, good, with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken falsely and your tongue mutters wicked things. Romans 3.23 declares that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this word sin means to miss the mark. See, there's a standard of holiness and perfection that God has. It's Himself. He is the standard. And it is reflected in His laws and His commands to us. His perfection and glory on top of that, we were designed even to share and experience that glory with Him. But in our sin, we miss the mark. We can't keep up. Our sinful nature keeps us then from, the God, from God's presence. Our unholiness prevents a communion with Him. Let's jump back to God's holiness for a second. God's holiness pervades all of His attributes. All of them. His mercy, His love, His justice, even God's anger and His wrath are a righteous anger and a holy wrath. Because He is without imperfection. Now track with me here. A holy God who leaves unholiness unchecked is no God at all. You see the problem that we're about to run into. Sin must be dealt with. Justice must be done. So God in His holy and righteous justice declares that the wages of sin is death. The cost of pervasive unholiness, He says, is life itself. Now you might remember that back in Genesis at the beginning of time, out of God's holiness came creative perfection. The Garden of Eden was the perfect place to find communion with God. But Adam and Eve chose themselves despite all of the perfection around them. They chose themselves. And when sin entered the world, something died to cover Adam and Eve. They couldn't cover themselves. Something died to cover them. The wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 puts it like this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live 
when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's our enemy. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and our thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. In other words, left to ourselves, we are broken, without hope, lost. So here we are, the very creation of God, but by our choice of self over Him, fully engulfed in sin, we are now deserving of His holy wrath, and we are unable to cover ourselves from it. Now, I want to be very clear here. Scripture teaches that we, in our sin, are actual enemies of God. Colossians 1.21 says, You were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. We have rebelled against the perfect God and His holy kingdom following the desires of our own hearts, looking out for number one. Is that heavy enough on you yet this morning? Now, this is very bad news. I've given you very bad news. But good news can only be as good as the bad news is bad. Can I give you some good news this morning? Can I give you some good news this morning? God, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you with an immense love that you will never even fully understand until we can stand before his throne in heaven and fully bask in all of his glory. That's what he wants to share with you, himself. God loves you. God loves you more than you love tacos. God loves you more than you love your wife. More than that feeling of, of I will protect and provide and do everything I can to hold on to this new baby in my arms. God loves you more than that. God loves you. Despite your sin, despite your selfishness and your weakness and your lying and your lust, not being able to get your act together, God loves you. Despite your past, despite your thoughts, God loves you. He loves you. God loves you so much, finish it with me, that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We've got it memorized. Do you believe it? Do you believe that? This leads us then into truth number three. Because of God's great love, Jesus died for our sins, satisfying the wrath of God. Jesus died for our sins, satisfying the wrath of God. So again, we quoted John 3.16. God sent His Son, Jesus. Jesus, who is one with the Father in absolute unity. That means that He is perfect. He embodies the very righteousness of God because He is God. He was there in the beginning, John chapter 1 says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was God in, He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That picture of life, that light in the darkness, clearly presents the contrast of who Christ is in comparison with us, with the world, with the sin that is so pervasive. Light and darkness, sin and perfection. Listen now, Jesus is the standard of holiness that God demands because Jesus is himself God. Jesus is the standard of holiness that God demands because Jesus is himself God. And so God sends Jesus to the earth to become a man, to become like us. While still being fully God, he lives a human life. And this is important. God supplies what he demands. God demands perfection, and so he supplied himself for us. Jesus then comes, he lives the perfect life without sin, pure holiness, meaning he has lived up essentially to God's standard. He has, in a sense, earned the right to be with God, something that we can't do. Yet as was the plan from the beginning, he willingly goes to the cross to pay for our sins. Not his own, he has none. But out of his love for us, he takes our punishment so that we could then have the freedom that he's going to offer to us. 
that willingness of Christ to go to the cross. little side piece here. I went and I visited Doris Rupert this week. Remember Doris? She's amazing. She's taught so many of us how much God loves us, the gospel that saves. I sat with her and we started swapping stories about what God was doing and the things that she was learning. You know, I went to care for her this week and she cared for me. That's pretty much how it always happens. She ministers to me. We started talking about Abraham and Isaac. And I remember that the last time I read that story, I was struck by the willingness of Isaac to go along with what his father was doing. You ever caught that in that story? I don't know exactly how old Isaac was. He was a lot younger than Abraham. Like 100 years. Have you thought about that? It went so far as to Isaac was tied up and laying on the altar. You don't think Isaac could have gotten away? He either had to trust so much in his father that what he was doing was what God had asked him to do. Or he was trusting God himself because he had also been given some type of the same revelation. He willingly crawled up on that altar. What a picture of Christ for us. Jesus willingly goes to the cross to pay for our sins. He takes that punishment. He knows that he's about to accept the full wrath of God against sin. All of mankind, all of our iniquities on his shoulders. It has to be paid for. He knows it's the only way to reconcile those that he loves back to himself. We can't pay it back. We never will. And so he becomes our substitute. Our atoning sacrifice. He swaps places with us. He becomes the death sacrifice necessary to cover us, which then appeases God's wrath against sin. I want to pause here long enough to warn you that this is where progressive Christianity is attempting to rewrite the scandal of God's grace. They can't stand the idea that a loving and holy God would demand such a penalty as death for sin. Despite the overwhelming biblical testimony to the contrary, so they begin to reinterpret the meaning of the cross. You need to watch out for this, saying that because God is love, Christ's death wasn't necessary to appease some kind of wrath or payment of wrongdoing. Rather, Jesus allowed humans to kill him, not fighting back to show us the true meaning and way of love. And that through us seeing that revelation of love, we would desire to give up our sinful ways and desire to connect with God. Hogwash. That directly insults the holiness of God. It diminishes the depth of His love and it downplays the seriousness of our sin. Romans 5, 6-11 clears this up for us. You see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Amen? Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, since now we have been justified, made right by His blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, Shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Romans 3.25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Make no mistake, your salvation was bought, it was paid for by the blood of Jesus. There's a Croatian theologian theologian, Miroslav Volf. Is that for a name? And this man who, after witnessing the horrors of the Bosnian War, wrote about God's wrath in his book, Free of Charge. Listen to what he wrote. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. And that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed. 
and over three million were displaced. My villages and my cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? And though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God's wrath, God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. This is the love of the gospel, that a good and holy God is wrathful, righteously wrathful against sin, but the very people that he loves are full of sin and we're unable to be with him. And so what does he do out of his love? He takes that wrath upon himself in order to bring his people, you and I, back to himself, to be reconciled, brought back in relationship with him. What a loving God we serve. What a loving God we serve. The fourth gospel truth for us to consider this morning is that Jesus' resurrection proved victory over sin and death. More scripture for you. Romans 6, verse 9 says, that For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Romans 8.10, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. This is good news for us, church. We can't miss it. Not only does Christ's death cover our sins, but his resurrection now proves his authority over that sin and death. Let me walk that out for you again. Jesus dies on the cross, effectively paying the penalty for our sins. So now we have been justified. We stand right and free. In the meantime, our enemy, Satan, thinks that he has Jesus right where he wants him. Death has swallowed him up. He has beat God. Oh, but Easter morning rolls around. And the resurrection of Christ proves that Jesus has not just forgiven us of our sin by his death. He has now won victory over sin itself. And so we're forgiven of sin, but now we have power because Christ came back to life. That same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in us. And we have power over the same sin that God has already forgiven us of. That gets me excited. Now, we've walked through four tenets of the gospel this morning. God is holy, man is sinful. Our sin separates us from God and leads to death. Jesus died for our sins as our substitute, satisfying the wrath of God. And then Jesus' resurrection proves victory and power over sin and death. Now, a key point for us this morning, I believe, ties these four things into our reality. And it's this. Salvation is assured only on belief in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Those four things are true. They have happened. But your salvation is assured only in belief, only on belief in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And that even comes as a gift from the Lord. Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus said, the work of God is this. Here's the work. Here's the good things you ought to be doing. Here it is, to believe in the one he has sent. That is the work. Romans 10 Verse 9, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Your salvation 
Your forgiveness from sin, your heavenly inheritance, your rescue off the road to hell comes from your belief in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Did you notice today that there was nothing said about the good things you ought to do? The works that accompany your faith. The things that you should stop doing. Church, understand, get this into your head. Ask God to put this into your heart. By no merit of your own, whether positive or or negative, can you stand on this gospel. It is by grace, through faith, that you are saved and forgiven of sin. That is it. The gospel is the proclamation that the finished work of Christ on the cross has covered your sin, satisfying the wrath of a holy God and has procured new life everlasting for all those who believe in the name of Jesus. That's good news. I want to call back to where we started this morning of what Paul is saying is of first importance. Remember we read that first, of first importance? This gospel that saves, what we just worked through, that is to be our primary focus. Believe this, he says to believers. Why is he saying that? Why do we continually come back to the gospel? Why do we need to keep it in front of us? It seems redundant. I believed it. I've been saved. Believe it more, Paul says. Why are you telling me to believe something that I already believe? Here's why, church, because it is out of our continual belief in this gospel that we find eternal encouragement, good hope, and strength for what he's called us to do. Scripture tells us this in 2 Thessalonians. If you have your Bibles, turn there quickly. Chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This will be on the screen for you as well, I believe, at least the second half of this. Starting in verse 13. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He calls you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings, the gospel, which we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, here it is, who loved us and by his grace, that's the gospel, gave us eternal encouragement, good hope, Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good word and deed. Do you see it there? It is through belief in the truth, holding fast to this gospel of grace, that we then share in the glory of Christ and are given eternal encouragement, good hope, and strength. I tell you what, those are the things I need every day. Again, Getting better at the good things that we ought to do does not give us access to the glory of Christ. That is a works gospel. You thinking more positively does not provide strength, encouragement, and hope. It is only in this gift of grace, our belief in the gospel, that we share in the glory of Christ and experience strength, encouragement, and hope. I don't want you to get me wrong. This is not cliché. This is not an empty spiritual inspiration for you this morning that does nothing to fix your problems. I want you to know, church, that everyone's greatest need is answered by the cross of Christ. Everyone's greatest need is answered by the cross of Christ. Whatever it is that you face, however it is that you feel, whatever pain or darkness or weakness that is upon you, by belief in this gospel, you can receive strength, encouragement, and hope because it comes through the person of Jesus Christ. It is through Christ and all that he has done that we are not only saved from sin, we are given everything that we need. This is not a downplay of your experience or your circumstances. In fact, it is the opposite. It is a recognition that in your weakness, we can see God's rescuing power shown to us through Jesus, whom we have received through the gospel. Let me put this another way for you. How does this gospel impact my everyday The gospel is not good advice. It is good news. The gospel is not good advice. It is good news. So when you are broken and you are hurting and you've done all that you can do, you've tried all the things and you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps anymore, the last thing that you need is someone coming up to you with good advice, saying, here, do this. Have you tried this yet? Follow these steps to fix your problem. All of that is just self-help junk. 
Self-help doesn't work. It's why it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Thank you for understanding that. If it worked, it wouldn't, they wouldn't write new books every year. Reminder that it's self that is the problem in the first place. If self is the problem, how can self be the solution? What's the problem with your life? I am. What's your solution to fix it? Me. That don't make no sense. But the gospel isn't like good advice when you're hurting. The gospel is good news for when you're broken. The Psalms are filled with this pattern. Have you read through the, the Psalms? Songs, uh, Psalms of lament and pain, feeling distant from God or, or lost and broken in sin. Absolutely none of them end in the six steps to overcome your brokenness or effective strategies for crawling out of your sin. You know how they end? Praising God for His saving hand. Rehearsing the good news of the rescuer. Returning to the truths of God and His promises. An example of that, Zephaniah 3, 19. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. Recite that when you're feeling low. Now, why would we do this? Why would we do this? It is because out of our continual belief in the gospel, this is our key to this morning, out of our continual belief in the gospel, we can receive encouragement, good hope, and strength. The gospel is not good advice. It is good news. Because when you are lower than low, you need to hear that there is a God in heaven who loves you so much that for all that weakness and all that brokenness and all the sin that you're in and experiencing, He Himself, that Lord of heaven, came to die in your place so that you might know forgiveness and love and a true peace that comes from knowing Him. And hold on to hope, sister, because one day He's coming back. He's going to make all things right for good. He's going to take you with Him to heaven where you can bask in His glory and never shed another tear. If that ain't good news and doesn't give you hope, then you didn't listen to a thing I said today. You may not be convinced that just belief in the gospel itself can give us these things. But I've experienced this. Many of you have as well. Almost four years ago, the gospel became more real to me. I began to, to learn to rest in it I, to, to believe it more and more. I was saved when I was 10. But it wasn't until I was 30 <laughs> before God began to, to work in my heart as I began to recognize and understand the truth of the gospel. I took ownership of the fact that God had forgiven me and loved me as I am. It was then, church, it was then that things started to change in my life. I didn't start to necessarily do things better that unlocked this magical moment for me. But as I began to take ownership for the gospel, I started having victory over sin that I had struggled with. My ministry philosophy became clearer. There was a contentment of joy and peace that God began to grow in my heart despite the circumstances I found myself in. It, it's real. Continual belief in the gospel will give you internal encouragement, good hope, and strength. You don't have to take my word for it, but if you want to taste and see that the Lord is good. Give holding firm to the gospel a try. I want to invite the worship team up as we close today. Stay with me here. This gospel that saves, that we talked through this morning, it is not simply a one-time acknowledgement that punches your ticket to heaven. Right? And we have our, our gospel box checked, and so now we move on to bigger and better things. It is to be the primary focus of your faith. So the question to pose to you this morning, is this gospel your gospel? Is this gospel your gospel this morning? Has this simple yet powerful proclamation become yours? Do you need to be saved this morning? God loves you. He wants to save you. Maybe you have been saved, but ownership of the gospel, that's a different story. This idea that out of your continual belief, keeping it in front of you, you're holding firm to the gospel is what provides you with the encouragement and the hope that you need. Is that what you've been missing? 
What does it look like for you to hold firmly to the gospel? As we close, I want to suggest two things to you this morning. Preach it to yourself. Pass it to others. That's it. That's all I got for you. Preach it to yourself. Pass it to others. I've encouraged you with this before. You need to remind yourself of the truth. Every day, you should be rehearsing the gospel. Jesus died for my sins. I am forgiven and loved by God. Jesus died for my sins. I am forgiven and loved by God. Jesus died for my sins. I am forgiven and I am loved by God. You can say it out loud. You can say it in your mind. You can rehearse it with your family. You need to remind yourself of the reality of your blood-bought freedom. You need to introduce the glory of Romans 8 to the mess of Romans 7. Although we wake up in Romans 7 every day, I do not do what I want to do and the things I ought to do, I find myself not doing them. That pattern, that mess we find ourselves in, we wake up in Romans 7, but Romans 8 is right there. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I dare you to preach the gospel to yourself because when you do, like Paul, you will become convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ooh, I hope that's true for you. Preach the gospel to yourself. Pass it to others. You remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15? We read through that. Even in 2 Thessalonians, those teachings, he said, the teachings, the gospel, were passed on to you. What he received, he passed on. When you have good news, you best tell somebody. And you'll find that in your relaying of the good news, it starts to cement itself more in your own heart. Teachers know that. When you teach something, it becomes more solid to you. However, this passing it to others is more than just evangelism. You should be passing the gospel to others by extending grace to those around you. As you have been forgiven and loved, that's the reality of the gospel, you are to forgive and to love welcoming as Christ has welcomed you. We need to be people of grace. That's next week. I want to finish with a story this morning. I mentioned that a few years ago was when the gospel became real to me. I want to share that story with you. We were at uh, Big Chill. That's our youth retreat that we take yearly in the winter. And as the, the leaders, the, the adult leaders met with our speaker before the first night. We gathered together to pray and to know, kind of get a, a direction, some unity before we launched into the weekend, you know, the chaos of the students on the campground. Our speaker told us where he was going for the weekend. He said, listen, high school students are learning calculus, high-level math. If they can do that, they can understand doctrine. He says, I'm not pulling any punches this weekend. He said, okay. He was the least entertaining speaker we've ever had at Big Chill. But he was the most captivating that we've ever had. He gave us the truth of God's word. Students and leaders alike were captivated by the word of God because he was faithful to preach the gospel to us. And I remember in session three, he took us through Romans three and he's talking about the law and the gospel and that in the law there, it, it is good because it reflects God's glory, but it is totally condemning because when we miss the mark in any part of the law, it is total condemnation for us. We are utterly lost because we can't live up to the standard, unholy, left to ourselves, broken, enemies with God, deserving of wrath. The law condemns. There was a heaviness to what he shared, but then he hit us with the good news of the gospel. That because of what Christ has done on the cross, the law's curse has been vanquished. And we've been gifted new life through grace. All he did was preach the gospel and I found myself weeping. Church, I wept 
in front of my students, in front of my peers. We were trying to close the service in worship and I'm, I can't even sing the words. I'm weeping hearing this gospel that I myself was already teaching to all my students. It was like, it was that God, God in his mercy gave it to me anew. I was undone by the goodness of Jesus. And since that moment, I began to preach that to myself day after day after day. And I'm telling you, it will start to change your heart. Are you undone by the mercy of Jesus? Are you undone by his goodness to you? Have you taken ownership of the gospel that God loves you? God loves you. I'm going to have you stand. I'm going to pray. We're going to close with a song. I got saved. (laughs) Speaking the truth of the gospel, being undone by the mercy of the Lord. I hope this is true for you. That as you keep the gospel in front of you, which we need to do, our hearts lead us astray. We're bent towards evil, but we are loved and forgiven by God himself. God, God, we give you all the praise and the glory this morning. God, we worship you for the gift of your son Jesus on our behalf. That by no merits of our own, we can make ourselves back in right relationship with you. God, we know, we recognize that we are, we are broken, we are lost, we are sinful apart from you. But God, we rejoice in the fact that our hearts have been made new. God, you call us sons and daughters. We've been given a new identity. That's who we are. We are who you say we are because of what Christ has done. You don't look at us and see our sin. You've removed our sin as far as east is from the west. You see Jesus when you look at us. God, put that in our hearts. And God, may we turn that back to praise. God, change us, mold us by the power of your Spirit. Let us become people of the gospel. We love you, Jesus. We offer this praise to you. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message from the Summit Church Podcast. Again, if you have questions, visit us at summitniles.com. Now go and be the church in the world.